Last week you spoke to Hayden about the heavy coverage uh, of the death of Prince Philip on Midweek Media Watch last week. You know, he talked with you about how it overshadowed so many stories that weekend after he died. That's obviously before the funeral this past weekend. Uh, and he mentioned that the BBC had had a huge number of complaints and had to set up, I think, a special service uh, to handle the level of complaints from people who were annoyed about maybe missing, you know, MasterChef or sports coverage and stuff like that that they'd expect to see on television. Um, and uh, with that in mind and the funeral coming up, uh, something on RNZ's news last Saturday night with Phil O'Brien uh, made me laugh because if, if you thought it was all over, um, Phil in this news item gave you a hint that it wasn't yet. The BBC has confirmed it received 110,000 complaints from the British public over its coverage of the Duke of Edinburgh's death. It's the most complained about piece of programming in BBC history. The corporation cleared its schedules to cover the news when Prince Philip died a week ago at the age of 99, but some viewers were unhappy with the saturation coverage. And RNZ National will bring you live coverage of the funeral procession and service from 1 o'clock tomorrow morning. So even even more to come, even in the small hours of the morning. But uh, that funeral, um, interestingly, was live on both TVNZ1 and 3. They took uh, the UK coverage from BBC and the British network ITV, respectively. Uh, then they replayed the funeral proceedings um, uh, the next day as well. So that's, that was full, I think, two and a half hours before the funeral was played overnight in the live coverage, a little less in those uh, those um, more respectable hours on Sunday for the replays. But, you know, shows a pretty big appetite, I would have thought, for people wanting to watch it. I watched it. I wanted to watch it overnight, but it was just too late. I couldn't stay up, so I watched it the next day. And, uh, actually, I watched it on my laptop, and I watched the whole service. I thought Hugh Edwards, who fronted it, was superb. Even though he got um, some complaints, I thought he did very well. And then I went back to watch the end of it, and they'd taken him off completely. He's not at, no longer on the BBC coverage when you go and look at it online. Well, that's weird because he was a major figure, like a, a big 6pm newsreader um, back in the days, this was 20, 25 years ago when I when I worked over there at, at the BBC. But then, even then people realised he was the kind of guy with gravitas that later in his career would probably go on to do these sort of big state occasions. But I, I, do, I did actually slip a quick inquiry to Nielsen about whether they had any figures about how many people had watched here uh, the TV coverage. They, now, they didn't reply, and I know that these days they don't like handling media inquiries, people wanting journalists trying to make a, a quick story about who watched what and what the ratings were, so they don't tend to always respond to those, which is fair enough. But in the UK, you know, Hayden telling you that, yes, um, record numbers of people complaining, which is true about the uh, the coverage of his death, but the funeral, um, the the, the the peak, the, the viewing really peaked and in fact doubled uh, on the BBC in particular when the actual ceremony started. So not all the preamble. They say 11.3 million Brits tuned into the BBC coverage, uh, a couple of million more on ITV, half a million more on the pay channel Sky News. So my maths make that over 13 million, which is, I reckon, more than one in four adult Britons comfortably. And I think that's a huge audience in these sort of multimedia times. So maybe his death did spark a bit of backlash because of the wall-to-wall coverage, and some people didn't like that in this day and age. But I guess um, with those huge audiences for the funeral, the empire kind of struck back in a way.
And there was also another controversial programming choice that annoyed a few people here in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, that's right, pop stars. And this is where I have to admit I haven't seen the programs. I'm about to fall into that trap of talking about something I haven't actually bothered to watch. But um, they made TVNZ a surprise decision. This is last week for the debut of the program on Monday. Uh, they did a, a takeover. So uh, TVNZ2 screens pop stars three nights a week, but to kick it off, they screened it on TVNZ1 as well, which you know generally gets a better audience, a bigger audience, I should say, at that time, 7.30. And you know the program uh, which screens at 7.30 on a Monday on TVNZ1 is Fair Go. And I think that's a strange decision because uh, Fair Go is... A, an enduring and high-rating program. In fact, uh, when looked at the last annual report I could find for TVNZ, the fourth best-rating show of any kind on TVNZ in 2020. So in terms of local programming, it's um, second only, I think, to Country Calendar and, of course, um, the news, if you don't count that, uh, One News, which gets an even bigger audience. That's a huge audience. So I would say a really big deal uh, for a lot of viewers to take Fairgo off the air, given that also... Because the previous Monday was Easter Monday, it, d- it didn't screen then either. Did it work for them for TVNZ? Well, on the raw viewing numbers that I've seen in the Herald, uh, possibly not. So the Herald, obviously, they ask Nielsen a lot nicer than I managed to do because they got some figures for their story. They say 774,500 people tuned into pod, uh, pop stars across both those channels. But they say Fairgo the previous week got uh, just under 650,000 alone on on TV1 uh, all by itself. So I guess that combined audience would mean that the doubled up pop stars got fewer viewers. But I guess TVNZ might say, look, they increased exposure for a brand new show that is going to be on three nights a week on TVNZ2. So I'll I'll try and track the ratings and ask Nielsen even more nicely and see if uh, the, the the ratings hold up for that series, because I guess they'd figure it was worth doing that uh, if, if the ratings hold up. Because, you know, you know when you do something like that, the likes of Stuff and the Herald are instantly going to go out and scrape social media for all the grumpy postings from people who are uh, cheesed off about, you know, their choice being taken away or missing their favourite show. Um, actually, the spin-off's Toby Manhire, uh, with a heavy dose of irony, tried to review both channels' screenings of pop stars <laughs> to uh, compare the versions. Of course, he ended up just reviewing all the different ads and the ad breaks and see what we learned from that. So he found that TVNZ1 viewers got a lot more ads about retirement options. Um, TVNZ2 viewers probably got more ads, making them feel bad about the way they look. So I guess more about cosmetics and that sort of stuff. I only saw the first episode. Um, I'm mostly at work, obviously, when it's on, but um, then went away for the week. But uh, I think I would have liked to have seen more of the backstory of the competitors. They did uh, quite a few quick edits, and, and that meant you didn't have much of a buy-in to the person and their friends and family, you know, their backstory. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm wondering how you can do both, though, because that's the sort of thing you'd expect in a reality show, isn't it, where you get kind of intimate with the people and find out more about them, whereas if it's a talent show, and and the original pop stars back in the 90s, which launched um, True Bliss, wasn't it? Um, that was a, a band that held its own and, you know, could perform as a legit pop act. Um, so I wonder, can, can do you think you can do both? Have a, Oh, yeah, a, they do. In, in most shows, they do. They have a backstory with the, the person. You meet their family when they started singing, that sort of thing. So, but with this one, they didn't, it's quite quick, the editing, but it's great. The one thing that is absolutely brilliant is that they're original compositions, so you're getting to hear New Zealand music.
Oh, so they actually have to do the hard yards of creating creating the music. Well, that's yeah, good. they write it. Yeah, I did uh, because I hadn't watched it. I did listen into the the spinoff. Didn't only you know review the television commercials. They uh, talked about it on the Real Pod podcast, and the consensus seemed to be that that it was a bit safe. There's no harsh judging, and maybe you know there was those X Factor controversies back in the day, Willie Moon, and all that sort of thing. People didn't like the idea of contestants being bullied or put down. So there's none of that. But um, you know, if you're going to create a legit pop band, maybe they need a bit of harsh judgment or, you know, verdict. And there's no audience participation or voting, which there had been with things like X Factor. So it just made me wonder, you know, can you, back in the 90s, I can imagine a free-to-air TV show getting a big audience with uh, with the audience having a, a role in maybe deciding or supporting uh, the group. But can you create a legitimate um, or successful pop act that could stand on its own feet in the, you know, modern social media-infused world, I wonder? Mm, I don't realise that. Are they going to turn into a band, are they? Well, I think that's that's well, that's what happened to True Bliss. And if they're trying right. to find a new True Bliss, I wonder how it's going to work. But with that thing of, um, I suppose, getting back to where we started, uh, The Apprentice uh, kicks off another, um, you know, big franchise-type show. The thing, of course, made Donald Trump famous. So the New Zealand version kicks off on Monday, May the 10th, and that'll be a TV2 show. And I wonder if they'll do the same trick again with, um, you know, trying to give it a boost on both channels. And, um, you know, if they take Fair Go off again, you know, there might be an even bigger backlash we'll, we'll have to see. It's all a little old hat, though, isn't it? I, th- I think so. They've done it with – they do it with radio, don't they? When they're launching a new show, they'll put um, – you know, the the show on one channel will play perhaps on another of the network's, you know, music outputs to um, increase the exposure. But, yeah, I think... Not that. I mean, the ideas. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, this is where maybe I need to actually get real and before I talk any more about pop stars, I better actually watch it. That'd be a good idea, yeah. <laughs> OK, now let's go to these um, football clubs wanting to break away and make their own Super League in Europe, but it didn't work for them. No, no. So as you heard there in the in the bulletin, um, Dan Rowan of the BBC saying all six of the the English ones, which was half of the 12, um, you know, all had to roll back, pull out. It's extraordinary stuff, really. And I suppose for me the question was, like, is this you know, is this a kind of sports and business commerce story or is it really a media story? But I think that might be kind of almost the missing part of the story because we know they had, you know, Chase Manhattan Bank or, sorry, J.P. Morgan Chase, I think, as backers, these these 12 clubs that launched this uh, rather what looks like an ill-fated bid. Uh, but part of it is I wonder whether they... They, it hasn't been mentioned yet, but they must have had some sort of signal that some either big broadcaster or streaming platform like Amazon Prime or something uh, with deep, deep pockets was actually backing this effort to create a, you know, a new super slick European Football League um, for the elites. And of course, you know, as we've heard... Um, you know, it's really rubbed football fans and traditionalists up the wrong way. And uh, someone who had an interesting, uh, found themselves in an interesting position was James Corden, a British comedian. He hosts the Late Late Show on CBS in the States. And he hit his audience with a, a big, long, um, I think it was between six and seven minute long monologue about the, you know, the disgrace that was being perpetuated on British and European football by these super rich uh, billionaire owners trying to create the shiny new le- league. And he wound up his uh, monologue like this. Don't ever forget that it was them, those owners, they took something so pure and so beautiful and they beat the love and the joy out of it and they did it for money. They just did it for money and it's disgusting. And I know you don't care, but I do. We'll be right back with more of the Late Late Show.
Yeah, so that was a little bit awkward there for Corden because the <laughs> audience didn't really respond. And um, he was kind of wasting his time a bit there because he was talking about the line that had been crossed was that this is a closed shop and there's no um, new team can ever elevate and, and get into this big league by coming up through the ranks and, you know, winning through over 10, 20, 30 years as clubs have done in the past in British and European leagues. And this was the big problem. But an American audience would be listening to this thinking well, he's just describing the franchise system for the likes of the um, NBA and the NFL and all these things that American fans are, you know, supporting huge numbers. And here, you know, we've got Super Rugby and the A-League, their franchises where you don't drop out of the league if you don't do well one year. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, a, a tricky one for Corden to sell to his, um, his U.S. audience. Okay, and we just want to wrap up with, uh, on Midweek Media Watch, we talked about the concerns that were aired about the reported danger and general unpleasantness at night on Wellington streets, but we didn't really talk so much about the media analysis of what was causing it. Yeah, although that was, the, I think, where, where I ended up was thinking, I actually want to know more about that, because the, the Nicola Willis MP had stirred the issue up in, in Wellington here, where, where I am, she's a local MP, a list MP for National, and she had actually come out and said, look, this is emergency housing. And uh, she even said the gang members in the streets, people in the CBD who weren't here before. Uh, and she was criticised by political opponents as, you know, uh, basically blaming vulnerable people, classist and racist was what the Green co-leader Marama Davidson called her. But this is a building issue. And um, Jane Patterson, RNZ's political uh, editor, the last couple of days she's been reporting on claims and worries, not, not just in Wellington but elsewhere, where... Uh, People have been put into emergency housing and uh, people advocating for them are saying that families are unsafe and that these people are being pushed together in a motel environment isn't working. Um, but in Wellington, yeah, the very day we talked about it um, on a, a couple of midweek media watches ago, I kind of overlooked a column in the Dominion Post which looked at this and the response that Nicola Willis had had. It's by um, uh, local playwright Dave Armstrong, who's a really good, thoughtful columnist about issues here in the capital. And he concluded um, that, looking at the Nicola Willis backlash, he said, I've learned the lesson. He said that if someone tells you they don't feel safe, you don't belittle that fear just because you don't agree with their politics. Um, but at the same time, he said that reports about this, the sort of things we were talking about that had appeared in the media, uh, were a bit muddled. And has this media attention and that headline created a better focus on the trouble spots? Yeah, I think that's that's the outcome of it. Um, so uh, Dave Armstrong, for example, had highlighted uh, stories about police stats that had said, you know, Wellington had 10 times the national average. Uh, then he uh, saw that Thomas Lumley, the professor of biostats who loves at University of Auckland, he loves to pull apart uh, media misuse of stats. It said, actually, it's only about a 9% increase, and he's usually right. And uh, he, he'd also... Um, pointed to uh, the fact that, you know, as I felt as someone who lived in Wellington for quite a time, um, you know, there were always parts of the city where people were told not to go and those parts of the city shift around. And with that in mind, a current trouble spot is um, Tauro Park in Wellington. This is at the top of uh, Courtney Place, you know, big nightlife spot. And uh, in the Weekend Dominion Post, uh, veteran reporter Tom Hunt, who's covered capital issues for ages, and photographer Kevin Stent, profiled some of the people who live and hang out there and uh, some of the stats that had um, had led to it becoming a bit of a crime hotspot. So, you know, really putting a lens on it for local people to get a bit of a sense of what people are talking about when they talk about, you know, having trouble spots in the city. So, yeah, focus is really coming onto it now.